Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. I, I think of this as the ADHD trailer. <laughs> you know what I mean? It certainly uh, crams a lot of the movie into it, doesn't it? There's, there's a lot of movie, and it's just uh, they put it in a dice cup, and they shook it up, and they put it out, all of it's out on the felt, right right there. 
Uh, and it's fine because it, this is a shoot 'em up movie. And for me, uh, I I got the gist of it. I imagine uh, when I saw this in the theater, I was deeply excited for this movie. This was the movie that I wanted after generations. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny though. Rewatching this trailer, they it's it's Borg, Borg, Borg. It really is emphasis on the battle with the Borg, which was the best uh, nemesis that um, the Star Trek Next Generation team ever had. And I guess other other series ended up fighting the Borg as well. The title of the movie is Star Trek First Contract, Contact, and there's like no reference at all. Like there's no sense of what that first contact is through this trailer. And so I thought that was an interesting thing to kind of leave out of the trailer is the entire, you know, subplot of trying to make sure that first contact with extraterrestrial beings happens. Well, I think that's a great question because it's not just the the final moment, right? It's the whole B story on planet Earth that is largely not there at all. And uh, I, I wonder if that's because they didn't have quite so much faith in it or because, as you know, I, I see this very much as a, a, tu- a dual first contact story, right? I mean, first contact with the Borg Queen, that is a new thing that we didn't know about the Borg from the TNG uh, exploration of the Borg, which was, you know, not huge over the arc of the entire series. Yeah. I, um, but but uh, you see what I mean? Like in terms of a faith in um, in the, that particular part of the narrative? Even watching the trailer, I mean, you see a, a glimpse of the Borg Queen being assembled. and uh, But you don't know that she's like a Borg Queen. It just seems like, oh, she's just a different type of Borg. Like it's it doesn't give you a sense of why is this movie called First Contact? That, you know, because mm. it's the Borg. They've had first contact with the Borg. Is it first contact yeah, right. with the Borg and Earth? Like it's it's an unclear title in context. Oh, oh of that's a, a good one. I'd never heard. I've never thought of that. Yes, it's this is actually from the perspective of the Borg. The whole movie, it's Borg's first contact with Earth <laughs> back in time. You just nailed it. That's what nailed it. Is. it. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. I I really resent the fact that they uh, revealed the central Borg Queen visual effect in the movie in the trailer. That makes me crazy. Well, and the the writers, I know that they when they saw that, they, you know, got a note to Sherry Lansing, who was head of Paramount at the time, and it's just like you can't put that in the trailer. That's like the big reveal. That's the thing that people are going to be excited to see. And she's like it's I mean, it comes down to business often with these people and their decisions. She says if it's going to get people in seats because they go, "Wow, that's a really cool-looking thing," then I'm going to pay money to go see it. That's the end game here. It's not, you know, did we reveal something that we shouldn't have? And from a business perspective, I can see her point. But from a from a creative perspective, I really do wish that they hadn't shown that in the trailer. Uh, overall, though, especially coming off of what was otherwise kind of a lousy movie. With a better trailer. The trailer <laughs> made it look a Yeah, lot the better. trailer was better. <laughs> uh, this still was a, a trailer that was exciting enough um to to get you in the seat yes would you oh, call yeah. it a good a successful trailer i would call it a successful trailer on that count it's sherry lansing curse you sherry lansing in his nightmares he can see them in his mind he can hear them look cutest in his soul he can feel them I've just received a report from Deep Space Five. Long-range sensors that picked up. Yes, I know. 
The Vorg. Set a course for Earth. Maximum warp. Now, in Earth's darkest hour, he must fight them again. Captain, Earth. Life signs? Population approximately 9 billion. All Borg. How? Time travel. They went back and assimilated Earth. Changed history. I must follow them back. Repair whatever damage they've done. But this time, they must travel to the past. April 4th, 2063. To save our future. You're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. They invade our space, and we fall back. They assimilate entire worlds, and we fall back. Not again. The line must be drawn here. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, travel back with us to 1996 and our first cinematic engagement with The Borg. Jonathan Frakes has the con with Star Trek First Contact. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the next reel. And if you are a regular listener of the show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. Get to join our back channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members-only weekend show, the Saturday matinee, and you get better chances of being part of our listeners' choice episodes. Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. A few scenes in this movie, Andy. I, and I should say, of the next-gen movies, I, I hope I'm not alone with this, I stand behind this as the best of the next-gen movies. Well, Would you agree? You're not alone in that. Okay. Uh, I, I think this is the movie that we needed, certainly after the last one. Uh, we needed the, the... This was the movie that we needed to see the crew uh, become wholly capable unto themselves uh, without the support of another captain uh, and, and without the baggage. And we'll talk about that, the baggage that comes with writing this, uh, you know, the Generations film compared to writing this film. Um, and we needed some some shoot 'em up in space. We had been getting more and more of the shoot 'em up in space in the television series, and uh, I, I really think that we needed this movie to capitalize on that. Um, and so this this movie excelled in in those areas, uh, I, I think, and was was redemptive for me. But there are a few scenes in this movie that are some of the best in all Trek uh, that that I think are executed just. Perfectly. Five star with a heart. Perfectly. Uh, Alfrey Woodard and Patrick Stewart on the observation deck. Absolute pitch perfect sequence to my eye. Alice Krieg and uh, Brent Spiner, the first skin transplant. Absolutely. uh, uh, It's one of those perfect sequences for me. And I actually think James Cromwell and Marina Sirtis as, as drinking buddies, you know, and, and she gets to say time a whole lot. Uh, I, she, she's <laughs> she not generally... From Malcolm a, McDowell. <laughs> right? She's not generally very funny. But I, I think this sequence is uh, is cute and funny and charming, and James Cromwell is great uh, as a drunk. Uh, he is incredibly talented. Between Alfre Woodard and Alice Creek and James Cromwell as the guests... Uh, who are such high-powered talents, uh, I, I think they really lift this movie uh, in, in ways beyond just the shoot 'em up bang-bang in space. I would agree, and I would go so far as to say pretty much any scene between Alfre Woodard and Patrick Stewart is fantastic, like the one where he reveals the Earth and, and that they're on a spaceship. That's uh-huh. a great scene. 
um, the their goodbye. I mean, they just have so many touching scenes. It's just like two powerhouse actors working together, and it's so exciting to watch the two of them on screen. Um, and likewise with Alice Krieg and Brent Spiner, the two of them have not just that first skin transplant scene, but also I really like the one where he, um, you know, starts escaping and then he gets his skin cut and freaks out. Uh. He's just like tear it off, you know, you know, don't don't be tempted by the flesh, and he can't. And then it essentially is kind of their, you know, their joining, <laughs> you know, their full the, their proof of their fully functionalness. <laughs> Okay, now let me ask you that about that specifically. There is the, the there's sexy time with Data, and she kisses him, and he obviously, as as part of the the Soon series, uh, a, you know, Android, mm-hmm. uh, he is a fully capable, and we know he cries, so he has to be able to have some other sort of you know oh, mechanics <laughs> involved, yes. uh, and so uh, he's he's a fully functioning robot. Um, do you do you buy the kiss? Was that an important uh, sort of pinnacle of that scene? I thought it was a fantastic uh, point of that scene. I thought that it it just emphasized, you know, with this with the skin and everything. I think, and the fact that she had, you know, turned his emotion chip back on, um, the way that she was playing him and and you know playing with these emotions and kind of showing him this other side of things. I thought it was really interesting, and I liked all of that. Um, I, I thought it was a an effective use in context of the story that was being told here. Okay, then let's talk about the Borg, can we? Let's talk about the Borg. I think the Borg, and I'm speaking globally now, uh, the Borg is the central best antagonist in Star Trek, right? It is, I think, the most culturally resonant and relevant. It is uh, the greatest conflict with its own internal sense of, of being, right? That technology, this unbridled, uh, uh, you know, impossible march of progress of technology. Uh, we, on the Federation side, the Star Trek that we know, we can't live without this technology, right? I mean, the technology allows us to do so much of our great exploration. It is what the the entire, um, uh, you know, civilization is built on in the future, and yet this is the dark side of it, this thing that we can't stop. Technology is the villain. This this uh, um, sort of cultural appropriation of uh, of your uniqueness as it will become a part of our own. Um, it's 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 tough to argue that it is it is the ant colony that you just can't stop. And so I've always loved the Borg. I love the Borg as an as an e- evil, you know, faceless, nameless. You know, it is just this massive dark cloud that is impossible to to stop. And so, just, this... just like the other greatest antagonist, Pete, the Tribbles. <laughs> Andy, just just when I think you're not paying attention to me, you knock it out of the park. The Tribbles are essentially exactly, the same thing. They are the same minus thing. the technology. <laughs> Exactly the same thing. They are the <laughs> ultimate nemesis of the original. How did how did we not get a first contact movie where the villain was the Tribbles? <laughs> you know, I'd love to see a little Tribbleborg. <laughs> yes. Oh, I would love to see a Tribbleborg. Um, okay. Anyway, now, sorry to derail. All you. of that said, <laughs> no. Well done. All of that said, this movie destroys so much of what I love about the Borg by introducing the stupid Borg queen. No 
no disrespect to Alice Krieg, and I think what they did with the Borg Queen in, ter- in terms of her performance on screen was terrific. She's great. But I hate the presence of her. I think it ruins what I know and understand of the Borg, what the original or what the Next Generation series did with their introduction of the Borg. That there exists a queen makes them less terrifying than when they have no central identity. And that makes me insane, man. I couldn't agree more. It really uh, it frustrates me to no end because what was so frightening in the TV show when they're battling the Borg, particularly the the two parter, uh, best of both worlds, when Picard is assimilated, is that it's just this this uh, this enemy that just keeps coming. There's no sense of that central point that you can take out. And it was just, it made it much more frightening, I thought. And I agree with you. By having this queen, it just, it, it creates this, this focal point of energies, like the, the head vampire. If we get the head vampire, we can take down, we can save everybody. It's like, it, it ruins so much of what the Borg, uh, what was so great about the Borg, and becomes very frustrating for me. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like, I mean, I do like the scenes with Alice Krieg. I like what she's doing with data um i i think that it's some really interesting trek stuff but i agree it ruins the whole uh the the greatness of what the borg was yeah that that's really it it makes them it makes them stoppable and when i want them to be not stoppable um well i guess and, supposedly the way that they ended up treating it is like well there's more than one queen so they kill this one it's killing this hive, but it's not killing yeah. all the Borg so that they could kind of keep them going. And see, then they start writing stuff like that into it. And it's just like, ugh, it just, it ends up just kind of ruining some of that. And I know it was dictated by the studio. Like they, these guys all wanted to do a story about the Borg and then they pitched it. And the guy was like, well, what's the, what's the point of this villain? Who's the main, main bad guy? And so he kind of, whoever it was at the studio is ended up being the, the person who pushed them to have a uh, kind of a specific central villain, hence creating this board queen. I I feel like they underestimated the the sort of terrifying power of a faceless enemy, and uh, because that w- that was the argument, right? We need to put a face to the enemy, somebody with which they can have a conversation. You know, right. we need to be able to have those moments. And and had they not done that, we wouldn't have had the the showcase sequence of of Alice Creek. They would have had to be more creative about how they how they highlight a specific Borg, you know, um, to be sort of a representative. But making it the queen and in fact making her animated in a way that the Borg are not. Right. Is equally frustrating, right? They they make her sort of royalty, uh, and and give her much more character presence and resonance than I think. I, I think it makes her less scary. For me, it makes the Borg less scary. Yeah. All of a sudden, it takes a lot of power out of what they had done with the Borg. Yeah, it's really frustrating. And here's a question for you. Um, obviously, this is the uh, you know the cinematic debut of the Borg. For people who never watched any Star Trek and are coming into this, does the Borg as a villain make sense? Like, did they put enough in here to make it make sense? The inclusion of the Borg Queen, does that help it make sense? Like, in my head, I'm like, I wonder if that was kind of some of the logic behind it. Because, uh, I don't know, I I just feel like the Borg is, it's an interesting enemy, but I I wonder if, if people who are new to them might not get it as well. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And because, you know, we come into this having been fans of the best of both worlds and the Picard storyline with the Borg, um, because he'd been dealing with, I mean, that that best of both worlds was, that was the end of season three, I think. I think it was four. Uh, season it was it was it was over the it was the the first episode was the end of season three. Mm-hmm. The second part of that two parter was the beginning of season four. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that's true. Gotcha. And like we've been living with that as a past in canon for a long time. By the time this movie comes around, uh, and and you know in in that respect, it's it's kind of ancient history. Uh, and so I, I wonder how much more they could have gotten away with with just a little bit more um, backstory on the Borg before we jump right into, um, you know, our, our storyline. And this movie, one of the things I think as a fan does very well is, man, they don't waste any time up front. They give us exactly what we need to see with the Enterprise-E coming to the rescue in a big battle, um, Picard disobeying orders, the Admiral getting blown up, him taking the lead. I mean, I, I think the, the first 10 to 15 minutes of this film are they're just stellar Star Trek minutes. I, I agree. I, um, I always get frustrated with the incredible ease, it seems, to uh, for them to blow up the Borg ships. Um, like I love the space battle. I think it's fantastic. But once they pinpoint that one spot, it's just like the whole thing just goes up so quickly. And then when they're battling the sphere, that goes up so quickly. And I know there's probably, well, it's because the Borg were secretly beaming aboard the Enterprise. It's like, yeah, but still, their ship's just like, I don't know. I, I was a little disappointed with how quickly those battles came to a finish. That's kind of the, the same thing with all the Borg technology. The Borg individually are pretty easy to dismantle were their ships that easy to blow up because it just seemed really easy to but i you know i guess i've always bought the the whole angle that picard has this special knowledge of this one you know it's this is this is smog's you know right one scale missing you know what i mean that's what we're talking about that's a good point yeah uh, all right i'll give it to you yeah, I think I, I think I think to, it deserves I to be given. I know, <laughs> I know. But you know, they you were right. I mean, they start writing in all of these these sort of narrative hoops. By the time we get to Voyager, the central kind of uh, the the main battle at the in the last episode of Voyager is taking down not just a, a Borg queen. But the Borg Unicomplex, right? They call it the Unicomplex. It's the center of all Borg activity in the universe. So now there is not only uh, a, a queen, but there's a ho- there's a main home. Like there's a home for the Borg, and okay. that also makes me crazy. I don't I don't want there to be a central home, right? They're more dangerous and more deadly when they don't have a home. Exactly. So many frustrating things with the way that they continue to use the Borg throughout the series. Yeah, a little bit. And it, I think it's it starts here because they really this is where they start to to kind of explore the Borg as that central nemesis and I feel like they they you know took the wrong fork. Um yeah. and, and they make the movie less scary as a result. But I will say on the whole this movie as a darker Star Trek um is really great and it is a it's easy to forgive some of that stuff because I was just so ready for it. I was ready to see exactly what they were trying to put on screen here um, and and the relationships were sharp uh, and as as a, a sort of next generation trek showpiece uh, it it's still a win for me. You know something else that frustrates me with the Borg um, and what? maybe maybe you have the answer for this. Uh, um, why do we never see Borg aliens? Or if they're if they're assimilating everybody, why do we never see children who have been assimilated by the Borg? 
Well, I, we I'm sure a lot of it is Voyager. Effects, do we? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it is. Aliens and, 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 and children. One, aliens and children. We do have some. Well, and aliens are still considered in canon in some of the games. We do have alien uh, Borg um, that are that are effectively in canon. We do have a credited alien Borg, and I am looking at a picture of it now, and I realize there is an alien on this movie. It's a Bolian, which is another humanoid with blue skin. He has a split down his face. It looks like his his face is split down the middle like it was screwed together and you can still see the seam uh and so it's really hard to tell uh that it's actually a bullion because of all the contraption but it is an alien and there are some other uh episodes where you see like klingons that have been assimilated and uh so if you you can do an image search of just bullion borg and you can you can see the uh, various um Borg contraptions on top of him. So, well, that uh, makes me happy because I know we yeah. introduced him briefly in the. Um, he's in engineering. We yeah. see him. Jordy says something, or they chat real quick before. That's right. Before the other engineers start getting assimilated, so I appreciate that he's there. Yes, me too. Uh, played by Don Fisher. The cost of making a Borg was high. They only made you know eight Borg for this movie, and they make them look like eight hundred, and and that's a. That's great. <laughs> it was really effective uh, to make them look that threatening when they only had eight Borg. And these are the same eight Borg that were used repeatedly throughout Voyager 2. So um, these these Borg, they're great-looking Borg. And, and they're such an advancement over the Borg that we had in, in The Next Generation. So. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's that's your Borg question. And we do have, uh, you, you said children. We actually do have, a, in, in fact, there's an episode. It was called, I think, Collective, uh, where they actually find a, um, a, a hive or a collective, a Borg cube uh, that is run by Borg children that have become disconnected from the collective because of some break in technology. But they're all totally Borged out kids, like young kids. Huh. Okay. Um, and it's 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 cool and and haunting. Well, that's good. I just you know yeah. they're assimilating everybody across the universe, and it, every time I've seen it, it's always been humans. I'm like, how are they assimilating everybody if it's always human? Right. Uh, so well, and there's there is a species species eight six seven four something. There's one species in the universe that is more powerful than the Borg, and uh, that's the only thing that the Borg can't assimilate. And so there's a big uh, there's another big narrative. Because the Borg are effectively the Klingons to Voyager, right? The, what the Klingons were to, you know, the original series, I guess, yeah, that's a little broad. But the Borg are, are the central big bad. And um, and so this whole narrative of what we're going to do with Species 8674 or whatever it was, um, we need to pit them more against the Borg because the Borg are scared of them. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Oh, are we doing, are we doing our thing where, we, uh, where we, we talk about nerd questions? Is that a thing that you, you've... That, did you run into nerd questions here? I uh, did, that and, and that was one you? of them. That was one of them. So here's another one, and this is hopefully an easy one. Um, so Worf, it's clear at the beginning of this, he had left the Enterprise. Um, now, yes. my recollection of, um, of the TV shows is he ends up on... Doesn't he end up on Deep Space Nine? Is he that does. where he goes, or does he go to Voyager? He does. No, he goes to Deep Space Nine. Um, okay. And the reason he does this, after the Enterprise-D uh, was destroyed, 
Um, in, I think he was in in generations. Okay, right in terms of the our timeline here in generations, he was. Uh, I'm sure he was like flipping burgers or something somewhere. Nice. The the captain of Deep Space Nine, uh, character named uh, Benjamin Sisko, was dis- uh, discovered that dealing with Klingons on the frontiers of space was very difficult, and that um, only Klingons can deal with Klingons. He said, and so um, he reached out to. Uh, to Worf and said, I need you to come be my Klingon liaison and head of security or not, not even head of security. He was, I think, operations or something because they had uh, Odo, who was the chief of security there. So the, anyway, they brought him to DS9 and they gave him, um, you know, they gave him his ship. He he was kind of the, the captain on that ship whenever it was not docked with Deep, Deep Space Nine. And so um, as, as soon as they realized that after a couple of seasons of Deep Space Nine that it was very difficult to have a Star Trek series that was based in a location that doesn't change. Then they introduced this chip in the, the Dominion, and he started fighting on the on his own ship. So, so, so okay, so then the timeline goes uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, and then Star Trek Generations, and then Deep Space Nine, and then this happens somewhere mid-Deep Space Nine. Yes, and then he goes back to Deep Space Nine after this. Okay. Oh, so this is... he's on this Deep is, Space Nine. Right. This is... Yeah, I think this is in the middle of Deep Space Nine. Why, of all the people who are assimilated to be Borgs, uh, why is Picard the one who gets a Borg name? He becomes Locutus. Not even the Borg Queen has a name. Why is he the one who gets a name? I cannot answer that question, Andy. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's because of, of uh, narrative convenience. Um, my... So, part of what the Borg had done was to get Picard because of what he had in his brain, right? They wanted him because of what he knew about the Federation. So they, they did want him specifically. They wanted to take his, read his mind so that they could, so that he would give up all of, you know, so that they could get the codes or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, and so he, he was a special acquisition on behalf of the Borg, uh, okay. you know, more than just other but other humans. That was part all of the All they do the when they acquire people is they just assimilate their knowledge anyway. So what what yeah. makes him any more special? <laughs> like, um, that, that it was written that way. Yeah, right. Because he was the, he was the star of the show. He was the star of the show. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I can't back that all up. All right. Well, that's that's always been something that I found silly. As much as I like the name Locutus, I think it's a really cool name. But it's just always troubled me so speaking of things that that you know bother us or don't bother us i thought it would be fun to just run down this little list of love it or hate it um questions oh, for you love yeah. it or hate it i like right. it i know just see okay. what you think all right no, so that's good so let's kick it off we're going to start with jordy's ocular implants aka the first contacts <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it more that they are the first contacts <laughs> I actually i like... thought these were great yeah yeah i i like them I thought that it was fun to have him in something else. Well, not only that, but much of it is because I find uh, LeVar Burton uh, enormously charming and charismatic, and I love being able to see more of his face on screen. So if for no other reason than we get to see his face, uh, I call that a win. I will also point out that in the trailer, you get a quick shot of a close-up of his eyes as he's like doing a scan or something. But in context of the trailer, I, I wonder if I would have thought, and other Trek fans would have thought, oh, the Borg have assimilated Jordy, and his eyes are now Borg eyes. Like, yeah. that was an interesting way to play that up in the trailer. I think so, too. All right. Next, uh, James Cromwell uh, as Ze- uh, Zephram Cochran, dancing. 
Oh, great. Great. Are you it. kidding? You hate, hate it? it? Oh, I love it. He's drunk. He is I, drunk and he drunk. loves his music and he's terrible at it. I, think I thought it was fantastic. Maybe maybe I hate it because I hate that song and I feel like that song. Like later he puts on, was it Steppenwolf when they're taking off? Yeah. And it's much better. But the song, I just hate the stupid Oogie Boogie song. <laughs> That's great. No, I, I thought it was huge. Yes. All right. Enterprise E. Oh, yeah. It's about damn time. This is my ship, ship, man. This is a great ship. Yeah, it is a great ship. Are we going to talk more about the ship? Because I we we will talk more about it. Yeah. Okay. All right. What about what about Picard's dream within a dream opening of the film? Uh, It served its purpose for the jump scare. Generally, I'm not crazy about dream within a dream. I like that it helps set up the Borg element of our storyline. I'm not crazy about it, but yeah, the jump scare works. um, So yeah, I guess I'll give it that much. How about the Borg sphere ship? I don't think um, up until this point we'd ever seen them in a sphere ship. It's always been a cube, right? So they have been introducing more round shapes. I, do, I think this was, I think you're right, this was the first time we've seen a, a Borg sphere. I, do, I just don't remember, um, and I'm, I'm getting the Voyager next-gen stories all mixed up. Um, but I actually do like the, the sphere. I think it is, uh, I like it aesthetically. I think it's remarkably inefficient shape for what they have already taught us about the Borg. Um, because when you put that sphere inside a square, there's a lot of dead space. What are they doing with that weird-shaped dead space that they normally wouldn't have to worry about if everything was still a square? Yeah, I don't like it at all. I think they just should have stuck with the squares. I think they're like the cubes have such a cool feel to them as something yeah. that's going through space. It doesn't matter if you have these odd angles. It doesn't need to right. be streamlined. I've always loved the cube. And then all of a sudden it's a sphere. I'm like, oh, why are they doing a sphere? What is that nonsense? So I, 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 I'm on the hate side of that fence. Here's my, here's my thesis. And, and when you, the opening shot, right, the first shot of the film, when we're close in on his eye and we start backing out, there's a whole lot of curvy stuff. Yeah. Right. As we're pulling out lots of circular things that don't make any anything more than aesthetic sense. Like it's it, it might be pretty, but I, I have a feeling someone was channeling H.R. Geiger. Yeah. Like mm. it it starts to feel much more uh, alien than Borg. And, and that's, I think, unfortunate. That's a really good call. That's a great point. What about the time travel method? Um, the Borg seem to have come up with a pretty convenient uh, way to do time travel. You don't have to hit uh, warp 10. You don't have to loop around the sun. Uh, what did you think of this? Well, I think, uh, you know, thank God for chronometric particles. I, I don't even know what that is, but it sounds awfully sciencey. So I, I buy it. <laughs> I actually, I like it that it was different. It, it was a new way to travel through time. I really like the way that we get to see the past and the, and the present at the same time, like they're in a wake, like they're surfing. I thought that was very cool. So I bought it. I actually do like it. Um, I only don't like it when at the end of the movie, they use the same method to travel back to the future. Yeah. Because I just didn't buy that all of a sudden now Jordy's mastered it and can do it himself. <laughs> yeah. He's very smart, but come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about uh, the Borg plans? Apparently they're going to, uh, you think they're going back in time to assimilate Earth. Um, but it seems like maybe they're actually going back in time to stop first contact or maybe it's stop first contact, then assimilate Earth. What, how does all this work for you? Do you like this plan? Does it make sense? I've honestly never asked myself that question. Does it make it? It's always just sort of made sense to me. Of course, the, of course. The, but once you discover they're going back in time, well, of course, they're going back in time to assimilate humanity. This is an interesting thing that you ask, though, because they're going back in time to a specific point in time. Why did they go back 
at exactly that moment, and why did they not give themselves just a little bit more time? <laughs> right? Isn't this the time travel conundrum that we <laughs> just talked about in our weekend conundrum. show? Yeah. Uh, uh, so it, that's an interesting thing. I, I absolutely buy that they went back in time to assimilate humanity but when there was no resistance uh, after the Third World War. I'm not sure how much I buy uh, stopping first contact as their central means to do that. I, I like that. I like both concepts, but I don't think that they were integrated well together. So when you kind of learn, because you see, as they're going through the wake, whoa, it's Earth's population. It's entirely Borg. And then we get there and they're just like shooting laser beams at the camp. And I'm like, whoa, I thought we were assimilating Earth. Because what they see in the in when they're in the wake they then see Earth outside of the wake as having been completely uh, borged out. Right. And when they see Earth in the past, they are both... St- so I guess they're stopping first contact so that the Vulcans don't come, and then that makes it easier for them to assimilate humanity. What do you think of that? I Yeah, I think that's fine. I just, you know, knowing that the Borg already seem to have a sense of Earth history, um, I feel like they probably would have been better served to just go straight down to Earth land and then just assimilate everybody yeah. at that camp and not worry about this nonsense of of shooting it from space because they yeah. clearly aren't very good shots. Well, that yes, that is abundantly clear. Good. Okay. <laughs> Solved. <laughs> All right. What about the escape pods? You ask that with a sense of sort of a tone of disdain, but I actually like them. I do too. I think they're kind of funky looking. I'm not sure how well they do um, coming through an atmosphere, but I still, I do right? like them. I think that they, they work pretty well for me. Okay, um, good. What about the depiction of Zephram Cochran in this film? I know it's different than, uh, I think he's been on, uh, I can't remember which show, but he was on a, one of the TV shows at one point. I like him here. I, I like anytime we get a chance to go to, to explore these characters and in a way that they are not what memory serves them to be you know what i mean uh and and i love what the the reason or or that that he is such a uh kind of a miscreant provides great fodder for i i think the b story which is otherwise kind of a snoozer uh i i love the conflict that is inherently connected by all these people who know him because of what they've been taught as a hero and then when they discover him he's an alcoholic and a and a mercenary Uh, and i think that's really fun and of of course, uh, you know he's portrayed so well. I I agree. Um, I I do have story issues also. Um, we'll get to that here in a minute. But uh, otherwise, I like exactly that what you said that you know this is a, a historical figure that uh, everybody has a an image of in their head, and when you meet him, he's actually just a, yeah. a goofball drunk. So I like that. Okay. Okay, so my turn to take the lead on this because okay. I'm really I have been really interested in your perspective on this central point. The <laughs> Borg rules, Andy. Uh, Getting past them is fine and easy as long as they don't see you as a threat. Do you buy it? I don't buy it. Um at least the way it's depicted here. I feel like it I, I feel like they did some of that in the TV show as I recall and I I felt like it worked better there. Here it's like Okay, these Borg have been assimilating. They come in on deck 16, and they're assimilating everything from, like, deck 11 up. Like, they're just going crazy assimilating the ship. Except when our heroes are near, they're not enough of a threat to to bother with. I just don't buy it. If they are having such a time, like, assimilating the ship deck from deck to deck, and they're just kind of going through the whole thing, why are they stopping and not worrying about these few? 
it really frustrates me. I know it's a story pop, uh, a story, uh, you know, plot point that has to work in order for our, our heroes to kind of get around. But I just don't buy it the way that it's depicted here. It really ended up uh, just frustrating me. And I think it's one of those weird Borg rules that in the way that it's done in the film, it ends up kind of taking some of the steam out of the Borg and makes them seem not quite as scary because you're like, well, you can just walk past them and it's okay as long as you don't, you know, punch them or something. Totally. I could not agree more. It breaks one of the fundamental sort of understandings that you have of the Borg as the as this thing that spreads. They they I, I don't I don't buy that they would stop. I don't buy that they would not see somebody who hasn't been assimilated and not try to assimilate them just to get it out of the way. Especially if it's as quick as like putting their hand up to yeah. their neck and they're putting those little tubes in their neck and implanting some nano dudes or whatever it is that they do it's like you do it's awfully quick (laughs) yeah you do see some sense of so this is me kind of rationalizing it you do get some sense of that there is some preparation involved so when a borg is early assimilated you see you know some of the full borg kind of leading the new baby borg uh freshly assimilated (laughs) folks you know and there's some so so maybe there is a question of like resource uh constraint like they have to their nanoparticles have to make you know new you know rubber suits or whatever there there may be a sense that we're not gonna we're just not gonna assimilate everybody blindly because we can't take them all at that pace maybe you could say that um yeah but i've never heard that so argument many made yeah, yeah. there's that's, that's a yeah. problem it's like we they've already said so many times they've already assimilated 90 percent of the ship or whatever it's like well why, they why also the borg also have a central mission which is not to assimilate the ship their central mission was to convert the deflector dish into that relay thing so that they could call Borg from the, you know, I think the the Delta Quadrant uh, or further into the Alpha Quadrant for the first time, right? That Right. That is what they had and to do. And so maybe that's what they were solely focused on. To that end, if they had assimilated as many decks of the ship as they had, and we know these ships hold lots and lots of people, they should yeah. have had more than four Borg out on the, the hull yes. of the ship right. working on that deflector <laughs> dish. Right, with their little, oh, little fancy backpacks. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, all right. What do you what do you think about the holodeck scene? We have uh, uh, Private Dix and uh, and uh, Alfre Woodard, they go into the holodeck, and it's clearly one of the books that uh, one of the old old timey detective novel holodeck novels that uh, Picard is fond of participating in, which I guess had been seen in the show. This particular oh, yes. story, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't mind it. Um, I think it's kind of nice. Initially, I was like, "What is he? Why is he bothering to go lure a couple Borg here?" It seemed kind of silly to me. Uh, and then it's like, oh, okay, well, he needed to pull this piece out so that he could figure out what their plans were. Okay, I guess there was a point to it. Um, so I, I guess in the end, I, I didn't really end up having a problem with it. I was a little surprised that the holodeck even has an option where all of a sudden the bullets are real. Like that I was like, well, that seems awfully dangerous to ever have as a setting. But yeah, take the safeties off. That's something they do all the time. Do they? Oh, yeah. Why? That's a, like, that's why would a they thing. do that? Why would that be a thing? I don't know. <laughs> Let's don't go participate know. in this in this holodeck scene, but we might get killed. Because it turns out the Federation is a an enormously <laughs> libertarian state. Like right. if you want to if you want to do that with yourself, you are free to do it. Ugh. 
Um, <laughs> I hate the holodeck scene. I really, it's definitely on my hate list. Uh, I, I, I know that one of the other uh, initiatives of Picard here was to have a weapon that could not be um, shielded against, right? I mean, because the, their energy weapons, the Borg adapted too quickly, and so he didn't have a gun that he could actually, you know, fire oh. against them. So I get that. He needed to turn the safeties off in order to be able to shoot the Borg. Um, but I've never been able to make sense of that, like you said, the safeties thing. That that seems too cheap, too easy and out. Well, it would have been better then. When Lily is taken to the Enterprise, it's because she's passed out after, you know, freaking out with Data, right? She had mm-hmm. an old weapon around her that she was holding. If she yep. had been, if she had had that, then Picard could have just used that and they could have eliminated yep. the whole holodeck scene. They could have done that. I, I think this was one of those things they had to shoehorn in for people who really love the private dicks or the, the his hollow novels. Yeah. Um, they, they needed to put that in there. That's... That was a fan service. Right. Uh, what do you think about Data tricking the Borg Queen? <sighs> you know, it's it, it in the end, it just seemed obvious. Um, it just it's one of those, you know, the way that they're going to write the script is to just kind of play you up to that last moment. And then, I mean, I like the moment with the resistance is futile line and everything. But at the same time, I feel like it also takes some of the steam out of the battle because for me, it seemed like. Uh, the battle really should have ended with Picard and and the Borg or the Borg Queen uh, as kind of the final battle. And really, it's it's Data ends up the one who kind of saves the day, and Picard doesn't really end up having to do anything. And so, uh, you know, his tricking the Borg Queen, eh, you know, it's it's okay, I guess. In, in story, it just seemed obvious, though. Me too. Although, had we not done it the way we had, it it would have required more narrative hoops to get uh, Picard to demonstrate that all Star Trek uniform undershirts are sleeveless. <laughs> well, the Borg do like a hot ship, Pete. <laughs> uh, so uh, Worf uh, en- ends up joining the team here when he comes off of the Defiant. What do you think of that? Is that a problem uh, for you? It's not. I actually, I like it. I, I think I think it was fine. I was kind of torn. I'm like, gosh, I, it would have been fun to have him kind of joining the fray with his own ship. But I, mm-hmm. I think it was fine with him kind of just ju- jumping back in with these guys. Yeah, for the for the series, yeah. you know, he, he's got to be part of the team. Lieutenant Hawk, my man, got a little confused with him last week because I mostly because I want him in every movie. <laughs> and that's why. So in my defense, uh, Lieutenant Hawk is Borgified through his spacesuit. Love it or hate it? I hate it. It's it's nonsense to me that that he gets borgified through his spacesuit. I mean, I guess I w- I wouldn't have had an issue with it if I would have seen like they had ripped his suit open to like get to him or something. And it just like just the fact that it's like he looks just like he did, except when he turns. Oh, now he's got a Borg face on. I, I don't know. That was a little frustrating <laughs> to me. I, this is a Casablanca uh, emotion for me. If I gave it any thought, I probably would hate it. <laughs> right. They try to auto destruct the ship. Do you have a problem with that? Uh, maybe it's just because um, I, I like this ship. Um, it was like, oh God, they're not going to blow it up already. They just killed a ship last uh, the last movie. Yeah. Um, it ends up not happening. And but, and I guess we're not with this ship long enough for it to have a lot of gravitas like it did with uh, Star Trek Three, when we really kind of emphasized that whole auto-destruct. But it, they do linger on it quite a bit. I mean, they, we do have the whole auto-destruct sequence as they do the countdown and everything. So, I, you know, I'm a little bit on the middle ground. I have some love and some hate with the... Uh, Riker and Jordy at the end, uh, they end up riding with Cochrane in his uh, first warp-powered ship, the Phoenix. And, uh, of course, because of that 
they once again put the therapist in charge of running mission control. Troy is on comms. What do you think of that? I hate every every part of this. Every single part <laughs> is just an absolute hate for me. It drives me nuts. It's like, why are they in the ship with him? Everything, oh, just like he should have had some of his own people. I, I, I know it's just to get the, the perspective of our crew and everything, but... Ugh. Well, and it was supposed to be it was supposed to be uh, Lily. Yeah. Lily was supposed to be that person. And so they were filling that hole for her because she was up fighting the Borg. I, I would have preferred still, that, that doesn't swear. That doesn't. Sway no, it you. doesn't sway me. I, it just it just seems like, hey, well, let's go along for the ride. There's room for two more. Oh, <laughs> I hate it. I have big problems with Riker and Jordy. Uh, in everything they do on Earth, because there is no sense of tension with anything happening involving the whole uh, the the rocket that they're they're building or anything, they're always smiley. There's no sense of gravitas. They're just like it's so casual. Everything happening on Earth is just far too casual, and there's no there's no stakes. And it's it's one of my biggest problems with this film is everything on Earth is just flat and lifeless. I mean. They try to give Cochran some some interest as far as, you know, he's this drunk and he doesn't want to, it's, he denies the hero's call, but it's so uh, flaccidly done. It's just, it's just, you know, I really just hate the way it's all done. And all the hero worship and everything, I'm almost like, you know, it's a time travel movie and, and these guys are potentially ruining it just by telling him all this stuff. And, and uh, you know, I just get so frustrated with, with everything happening on Earth. I uh, I agree with you. I don't get... Uh, I, I don't get quite so mad uh, as you are. <laughs> as you are, uh, I feel like uh, you know the intention of the of this B story is to get is to lighten up the A story going on on the ship. I think. And did it uh, need that? Well, would it have been Star Trek had it not? No. Nah. What is uh, that? <laughs> I I I I'm torn. If they, that's like saying, oh, you know, best of both worlds needed more. Uh, more light moments. I don't recall it having many light moments. You know, I feel like it was a pretty solid, you know, just adventure, like a frightening adventure story battle with the Borg through that whole two-part episode. I mean, I could be wrong, but I feel like they actually uh, made it pretty tense. And yeah. did did we need to have the half of this film be kind of light and fluffy as they do nothing on Earth? I, I'm with you. I mean, I, I don't think it was necessarily useful. And I think they could have had, you know, they, they could have had less of what's going on on Earth in order to prepare for first contact while, you know, dealing with the central issue, which is let's fight the Borg so that they don't get in the way of this. That's the thing that we are capable of as uh, other future people. We are capable of taking care of this future problem for you while you can get this thing back online. So anyway, the the last question is probably the, the maybe it's the most important question of all. <laughs> they actually use the words Star Trek as a line in the movie. Too far? Uh, you know, this is another love it or hate it. I think it's kind of funny hearing it from James Cromwell. Like if somebody else on the show, like if one of the regulars had said it, I probably would have really just hated it. The fact that it's Cromwell and he's just like, oh, so you guys are on some, you're astronauts on some sort of a Star Trek. It kind of is funny. I'll give it that. <laughs> I I thought it was, uh, I thought it was funny. I usually hate that. I hate it a lot. Um, but in this case, you're right. I, because it's Barclay. Had it been Jordy. <laughs> Saying we're astronauts on a Star Trek, I would have I would have just overturned the chairs. That's it, that's horrible. He, the, he gets a pass because it's Cromwell. So yeah, all right. 
let's so let's talk a little bit about your story problems uh, with this thing. What is your major malfunction? <laughs> I just feel like I, I appreciate that they wanted to do a, a story with the Borg. I appreciate that they were going to do a time travel film and they came up with this idea. Hey, let's go to the moment of of first contact and include that. Like, I think all of that is really interesting. But I feel like they could have made a much more interesting uh, script out of this if the Borg had, instead of just shooting from space, if they had actually landed and started assimilating, if they had, um, or if they had been shooting, if they had shot some key part and now it was a race against time for for Riker and his team to help figure out what to do to get Cochrane into space so that he could actually uh, fly the warp drive. Like if they if they if there was something that was broken, that would have made it so much more interesting on Earth. Like a little Back to the Future moment where we have to figure out how to get the get the lightning bolt to hit the the flux capacitor so that we can hit one point twenty one gigawatts. That was like such an amazing moment in Back to the Future, and there's nothing like that going on here. There are no happening in the Cochrane storyline, especially as it relates to the Borg. I feel like, you know, it's it's fine having the Borg on the Enterprise, but why not also throw some Borg on Earth that now they're trying to fight those two and help get this, this Phoenix off the ground? I just feel like there was a lot of stuff going on with the way that they structured the script that could have made it so much stronger. But it, it ends up being pretty interesting on the Enterprise, although I feel like the Borg are weakened. We've already discussed the Borg Queen. And then just a, a flat story on Earth. Now, I do like the, the first contact moment at the end of the film, but I just feel like it's, it, they, they don't do a great job with this script. I, the, the thing that, that really frustrated me this time that I've never actually noticed myself frustrated about is, to your point, about the, the sort of lack of intensity in that story on Earth. Um, and, you know, I think they would argue there are stakes. They have to do it by this time because that's when the Vulcans are going to be out in space at this one specific time. And we have to make this deadline to get the ship repaired so that we can get it off the ground. Right. I mean, I think they would make the case. I think Jonathan Frakes would make that case. The problem I have with it that I think would have increased the intensity between these two stories, the crew on Earth, Riker and uh, and his team, had no idea what was going on with the Borg on the ship. They left with just the, the only thing going on uh, on the ship was like, uh, you know, the temperature is a little bit high. Um, you know, yeah, right. You know, okay, and and then uh, I I don't like at the end when they see the Enterprise coming around and the Enterprise is about to shoot them. Riker and Jordy are all smiling. They're like, "Yeah, it's coming by to send us off." Like, there's no <laughs> there's no sense of impending doom uh, about that, and it I find that really frustrating. I I really wanted them. I I wanted more of a connection between these two crews. I wanted them to be working together to overcome the larger thing, and um, and and they weren't. They weren't even aware of it. No, it, it really weakens the whole story. The fact that the the B story on Earth um, just becomes just such a weak element of this storytelling process. There's no connection between anything yeah. and there's there's no motivation for that story to move. I mean, like I said, if they weren't there, the Phoenix would be taking off anyway. It's like nothing had been broken. There was nothing wrong. The only thing that had changed is that Lily wasn't around. And that's it. But it's like Cochran doesn't even bring that up ever. He's just like, I can't fly without Lily here. It's like right. he, there's nothing that happens that that shows me as a viewer that the Phoenix isn't going to take off tomorrow because something is wrong. Yeah. And it's like all it is is them helping him work on it and and just praising him. And it's just like it's just it's a it's a 
nonsensical story that really just gets so frustrating every time I watch it now. It's like, where are the stakes in this part of the story? I've never found myself so frustrated as this viewing with that story, like so bored. I really couldn't wait to get back up onto the Enterprise. Yeah. So that yeah, so that those are my issues. I, I feel like uh, Moore and Braga uh, in coming up with this story could have found a way to connect everything better, and I and it just didn't happen. Well, to that point, the first draft of the script actually had Picard on Earth solving some unrelated mystery with a photographer uh, that was that um, you know. Boy, if that doesn't sound like an episode. <laughs> yeah, right. And the B story was actually Riker fighting the Borg. And again, neither were sort of connected with one another. And that that sounds much more like what we get in <laughs> Nemesis and Insurrection uh, and and just a, a terrible, uh, terrible thing. And it was actually uh, uh, Picard. It was actually uh, Patrick Stewart who said, why, why can't I fight the Borg? Uh, during a, a script review, I'd, I'd rather be up on the ship, and that dramatically changes the tone of the film. Well, it makes more sense too, yeah. if, as yeah. somebody who had been assimilated by the Borg. I mean, it becomes his story, and again, yep. that's why I get frustrated by the end when when uh, Data is the one who saves the day, and Picard really does nothing to stop the Borg. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it really kind of kills the the end of the film for me because I wanted. Picard is the one who's got the baggage, and he's the one who should have had that great arc that gets resolved by the final destruction of bringing the Borg down, and yeah. uh, we lose a little bit of that. Uh, uh, Jonathan Brake says that he was, he says, I'm sure that this film was offered to A-list directors, and I think they were frankly not excited about doing Star Trek Eight, and that's how he, <laughs> he becomes the director, uh, his, doing his, his uh, first major motion picture. <laughs> I've got to say, funny. it is very funny. I've got to say, as much as I'm complaining about this film, I really like what he brings to the table as a director. Uh, I think that he has a great um, handle on these characters. Um, and I think he he directs an interesting film. Like, I enjoy watching what he brings to the table. I do, too. He had already directed eight episodes of The Next Generation, and he directed three episodes of Voyager and three of DS9. Uh, and uh, so, I, I mean, he was certainly uh, not only being in all of those episodes of, of Next Generation. They call him the cruise director, the viceroy in charge of fun, uh, says, uh, I think that was Marina Sirtis who said that. Um, uh, they really love working together and, and uh, that they, they have a really great time. This is not a film that came with a whole lot of uh, political, uh, you know, uh, hullabaloo. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's <laughs> when she says the cruise director. I think she's talking about like the boat director, like he's the director of the cruise. You know, making I, sure everyone am, has fun. <laughs> I am sure that's not the case, but I get what I, you're saying there. I am sure that is the case. Like I when I when I heard think... her say that, I was like, it's like he's the cruise director. It's like he's uh, uh, Gopher or, or no, whatever are... the lady was. I love no. Ju- it was Julie Gopher. Come on, man. Julie was the cruise director. It is it is not even remotely what she was trying to say. I can't. <laughs> but I love your I love it as the joke that you just pulled out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh they you know Moore said uh he says it was a better experience on this film because it was a second time because we didn't have the laundry list to deal with that they had on generations. And you can feel that. I feel like they actually let this crew be uh who, who it needed to be. 
Yeah, I I definitely agree there. I again, it's just like I, I like that they were given a chance to do a little more on their own. I just wish that that one note hadn't come down. Well, they, we need to have a very specific villain. I mm-hmm. feel like that one note um, brought this down a bit for me. I love the Enterprise E, though. I love what uh, Zimmerman did with the Enterprise E. He says, I've had the opportunity to build command centers for the military, and what they want is something that looks like the bridge of the Enterprise. Uh, and and I just so funny. find that just remarkably cool. Uh, this <laughs> Enterprise, uh, as a crew complement of 885, that's 130 officers, 725 enlisted crew, with a total capacity of 2,500 that is the evacuation limit of this class. It's a sovereign class ship. It is listed as explorer, defensive explorer, and diplomatic class ship. 2,500 evacuation limit. So how many people fit in each of those pods? Because that's a lot yeah. of people. And it didn't well, feel like, I mean, it, there was probably, what, like 50 <laughs> pods or something? That's yeah. like a lot of people per pod. And I did. I think they left some people behind. Well, that's not. Well, that's I guess not, there when were they're a lot talking of about evacuation guess, limit. They're not. They're not talking about those who can evacuate the ship. They're talking about using the ship as an evacuation vehicle from some other. Like if it's going oh, in on a rescue mission. Oh, I gotcha. And and especially when you compare that to the Galaxy class, the Enterprise D from from the rest of the show. That, as you recall, it has a one thousand twelve officers and crew, two hundred visiting personnel, and fifteen thousand person evacuation limit. Again, it just carries many many more people it's a much bigger ship that's crazy big it's crazy big that's that's, yeah yeah that's awesome uh the deflector dish set that they ended up building for the borg deflector dish was actually seven eighths actual size according to zimmerman and you know can't (laughs) give us can't even give us apparently it was restricted by the size of the set they couldn't build it any larger than that i i think it looks fine it it, i've always felt it looks a little slow a little small compared to the the cg of the ship and the model of the ship that they had uh, they have floating over a planet but uh, um it is still it's a it's a cool set they seem much more excited about it than than i think uh, i was i was much more excited about the the stellar cartography set in generations in terms of the new thing that they're showing us on on the enterprise yeah, I think uh, what I like about it, though, is that, and, and maybe they just don't emphasize this enough, but, you know, in space, you're on the hull of a ship, but and that that means you can be really anywhere on the ship, and mm-hmm. uh, it, it does show you at some point that, you know, you're kind of on that little front angled down part where that deflector dish is, right? You yeah, get and a, you're upside you get a, down. You, like, you're right. You're, and that's, I would have loved to see a little more of that play out, like from a little wider shot where you could kind of get the sense that these guys are kind of on that that under underside front area, like the bumper of the ship, essentially. Well, they and, do. I mean, they show well, us the establishing shot No, of that. I know, like, but I... I no, I, I'm I'm just saying I would have liked to see it play out more. a little bit more like that, yeah. where you're actually kind of seeing some of it, so you really get that sense that these guys are pretty much kind of magnetically, you know, glued onto the ship on its underbelly, and because I think that's a really cool perspective that you don't think about a lot in in space, is that um, you know when you're in space, the underbelly is essentially as much the top of the ship as the top of the ship is. So I, th- I thought it was kind of a fun way to play that out. 
Yeah. So. Yeah. I think that's a little bit of a struggle with cutting that. You know, how do you show like because you want to reset the audience's perspective so that everything is right side up again so you can follow the the narrative. I think they do have that big establishing shot where you see them on the, the bottom of the saucer section. And there is that that first initial close up of all three of them when they're upside down in the frame. Um, and eventually that gets reset. Um, but I actually, in this case, I think it would have been cooler to show that wide establishing shot uh, reversed. So you actually see the crew upside down and the ship is right side up. Right. and yeah. To demonstrate more carefully or more clearly where they are in relation to the rest of the ship. Yeah, that would have been nice. That would have been yeah. really cool. Um, at least they were able to close the loop on magnetic gravity boots. <laughs> <laughs> At least we have more magnetic gravity boots. Thank God. And and, and magnetic guns, which yeah, is great. Yes. <laughs> Although this is another nit. Like it feels like when you when they they show Picard releasing his gravity boots to to jump across the uh, the to the other side of the deflector array, right? And then they pull out this wide shot, and you see him jumping off of something that's essentially a 45-degree angle up, but he is flying directly across from it, right, parallel to the hull of the ship. And I just don't think he would have done that. I think he would have, had he jumped off of that angle, he'd be floating out into space. Yeah, that's always kind of one of those things. It's like, it didn't quite make sense. No, it doesn't make sense to me. He would have just shot the wrong way. So I I agree with you there. Let's, uh, Let's do a deep scene dive, Andy. Let's do it. This is the last scene. Set it up. Cochran has gone into warp one. He's uh, shot away from Earth and back, somehow managing to land his rocket back on Earth. And everybody's happy. And then, of course, we have uh, the, the the Vulcans clearly got the signal because this scene kicks off with the Vulcans arriving. Or I should say a mysterious ship arriving now at the Montana campsite. What did you uh, why, why is this an important scene for you? Uh, you know, this was just an interesting scene, I think, in context of the entire Star Trek universe. This is really like the beginning of all of it. This is the connection of Earth to an outside that is bigger than itself. And and finding finding that uh, the first uh, alien life form, or having that first alien uh, life form find us and then kind of connect us to the bigger picture, I thought it's just, you know, it's it's a really nice moment. And I actually like the moment. I think that this particular moment was done pretty well. I, I liked how it was done. I liked that it was these Vulcans and that they come down and there's this connection. I found it to be um, effective. So for me, and plus, I, I you know, Jerry Goldsmith's score through this film, I think it's so nice having Jerry Goldsmith back in the fold. And his music in this scene is so strong. It just, it really uh, just made this scene uh, work really well for me. It's, it does for me too. Uh, not, I don't think as much. I find it so underwhelming after the you know after what we went through with the movie and it's it's kind of forgettable and i think that's a story problem because it should be a much more momentous thing it should be a bigger deal uh that this is first contact and in fact when you take a step back and realize what has been at stake all along in this movie it is star trek it's the whole thing If, if we didn't have this first contact if we didn't hit warp at just the right time the entire series would be for nothing, right? I mean, it would be nothing. So the stakes here are very high, and I just, I, I'm, 
I have a hard time feeling that sense of kind of intensity. I think uh, Cromwell is very charming. I love the close-ups, the way they frame around his the back of his hand to show him trying to do the the Vulcan finger salute. Uh, I think that's I think that's really cute. I love that he um, you know he ends up shaking hands. I think that's a nice character moment uh, with the Vulcans. Um, but um, the weight of it that it pulls back to reveal that sort of wide shot of the camp and he's introducing the Vulcans to music. Uh, I, I, and they're all sitting around at that, that crew, that cafe table. Uh, I find just really underwhelming. Well, that's, that's kind of the next scene after our team goes back up in space. Um, I, I'm not, I, I'm not super thrilled by that scene either when he's given them brandy or whatever he's bourbon. Um, but I do, I, I, I like that this, this contact, this first contact moment, I, I don't know. I, I guess I think it's, it's a strong moment. I completely agree with you though, uh, it, it is it as well deserved as it should have been probably not and a lot of that i think falls to the script and the fact that there wasn't any tension in the earth story and the the first contact the titular point of this whole film is really left by the wayside and as as nice as a moment as it is here because i do think it is a nice moment all of the steam is kind of taken out of it because we don't we never really uh, have any build to any concern that this moment is ever going to happen. So yes, Andy, that's that's, right. That's there was never concern that this would be lost. I, that is the central point. I always knew that this, like I was never worried. I was never worried. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think the biggest problem with the film is that, and like I said, in the entire earth story, it's like, you give me that, that, that you know ticking clock that we're not going to make it to get this lightning to hit the clock tower moment that's what this that the the whole earth story really needed uh in terms of cast our lead vulcan is played by cully fredrickson um he was uh, he was in uh, he was van helsing's assistant in bram stoker's dracula in 1992 uh huh. you may have known him there um he he is it's funny he's one of those faces like i see him and and realize that i i find him enormously familiar but i certainly haven't seen him in a lot of stuff and he only has uh, about 35 credits uh to his uh to his name the other two vulcans were also borg um <laughs> and so <laughs> you may have seen them in that same movie playing Borg. Uh, and so um, they, but, you know, I, I will say on Cully, uh, he does look like a Vulcan. Oh, yeah. Uh, you put those ears on him and man, he totally fits. I actually thought they were trying to pitch him as a, a either a young Sarek or, um, you know, somebody who's who's sort of related to the Spock, uh, the Spock lineage uh, somehow. Interesting. I I, I like, yeah, I, I think that he's, he did have a look and for a, a little bit, I was like, I wonder if they are going that route, but, um, but I like that it's never pointed out and you can kind of, you know, question it if you want to, but I, I did like him as a Vulcan. I just thought he had such a, a, a great refined Vulcan look, which I thought was, you know, the reveal of the hood pulling back and you see the ears, and everything. I'm like, this was great. I really enjoy the way that they present this first, um, meeting with aliens that we get mm-hmm. for for the, our group of earthlings here how much of that is to the credit of matthew leonetti our cinematographer i think that the cinematography here for the most part is done really nicely um in this particular uh, sequence i i don't know if there's anything that stands out as something that really blew me away i i think it all works pretty nicely it's effective 
the dark night camp and everything, the alien ship, like the, the lighting is pretty nice. I will say the shot that really stands out for me um, that really just I, I found so poignant and touching is the shot when uh, when Cochran, uh, after he talks to Riker, he's like, hey, they're looking to talk to the guy who, uh, you know, created warp drive and he starts walking up there and he goes up to lily and you get this shot behind the two of them as they just gently hold hands just for just a couple seconds and then mm-hmm. he walks forward that shot for me just said so much about the, their relationship and just the power of the moment i i really that the framing of that shot everything was just like that was such a perfect moment for me Totally. I actually, I really agree with that. And it's funny, um, you can sort of see, uh, I, I think he has more of a trademark, Leonetti, um, than than some, certainly uh, some who've worked on Star Trek. Uh, their trademark is the work the, the that they did on Star Trek. But he comes to us, I mean, he did uh, Poltergeist with Toby Hooper slash Steven Spielberg. And, and sort of you can, you can feel the way he uses those close-ups and the close-ups on hands, you know, think back to hands on TV, uh, you know, hands on, on shoulders in Poltergeist, like the way he captures human intimacy. I think you, you get in this sequence. I think it's, it's really very strong and, and, um, and uh, sensual. Um, you know, not in a particularly sexual way, but just sensual. Um, and he also, we've uh, talked about him on the show uh, with regard to his work on Dawn of the Dead in 2004. And Strange Days right before this. Yeah, Strange Days right before this. That's which, right. which I think has has some of that same look, actually, yeah. thinking back on it. Yeah, I think so, so. too. So. And he'll do, he'll be, we'll be talking about him next week because he's... Uh, He's back right. on with insurrection. Right, right. So, and the the missile silo at this particular, we don't see it in this particular scene, but it's you know in this location we have this this missile silo, this nuclear missile silo that Cochran and Lily had used. Uh, they'd taken a nuclear missile and they had converted it into what becomes the Phoenix, which I think is really just a fantastic uh, idea in the world of Star Trek. The mm-hmm. fact that they take this this um, this item of destruction and they turn it into this amazing amazing thing uh, to kind of advance science and technology uh, and move the human race forward. I love that. Um, and they actually filmed that. There's a Titan Missile Museum uh, down south of Tucson, Arizona. That uh, That's where they filmed all of that stuff. It's a, in a real missile silo with a real nuclear weapon <laughs> sitting right next to them, which <laughs> I think is just fantastic. It's actually a really interesting site. I, we've gone there before, and uh, I. it's just, I don't know, there's something really intense about being in a space like that so uh, i think they did a great job of incorporating that into this particular uh, part of the story can you touch it i i don't think you can touch it and and have that sense that uh, that picard has i want i want that shot of picard and data but i want it with you and your son <laughs> with L- little, little data the wrong, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's his nickname after all that is that's, that's his nickname <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, on the deep scene dive, uh, you've already noted Jerry Goldsmith. I'm just, I, I was so glad that he was brought back into the, into the fold of this yeah. franchise. Um, I, I think that, uh, he had brought so much to it already with his, uh, music right at the beginning. It's, I, I'm really appreciative that the team ended up bringing him back because he ends up kind of closing out this, uh, generation of the Star Trek films. 
with his uh, with his stuff. And it's just the themes that he brings here. And I mean, he's also one who's good at integrating some of the older themes and everything. He does it so nicely. But then just this theme that he creates for this, it's just, I mean, it really is just a powerful theme. It's really touching and poignant. So I'm, I'm just so glad that he got to come back to do more of the movies. Totally. Absolutely. Um, any other points on the deep scene dive? It's kind of a short scene. I don't have a whole lot to say. I, I think it works well. Um, it's another one of those moments where I, I always question, I'm like, do I buy that our team is all kind of off in the back corner watching the whole thing play out? Um, you know, they have the whole, oh, well, we hit our signature, so they couldn't tell that we were beaming you up and all that stuff. I'm like, oh. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I know, I, I, I guess I'm okay with it because in context of the film, it's like, you know what? It's a moment that we all wanted to see. It's it's that moment in, in time travel movies where they get to see kind of the resolution and everything. So I, I'm okay with it in general. Um, I I I, uh, I don't mind it. I, and if anything, I really enjoy seeing um, Picard and Lily kind of parting ways. I'm glad it didn't turn into some romantic relationship. That would have just really made me irritated. I'm glad it's just like they, they became... Uh, close, kind of close friends over the course of their adventures uh, with the Borg. And so I really appreciate that because she is somebody, I mean, we had that great moment in the observation deck where she kind of, you know, she is the one who probably, the only one who probably could confront him and, and about this Ahab sensibility that he has with wanting to defeat the Borg. Yeah. That moment is so great up on the observation deck and and having her being kind of our audience surrogate coming into this film um, it's so effective. And that goodbye that they have, I think it's just, it's really touching, I think. It's, and it's a good scene to leave the film on, I think, generally. It's a, it, it's fine. I almost feel like, did we need to see the crew back on the ship? Or could we just have ended with Lily, you know, they, they beam back up and Lily looks up and she sees just kind of the little time travel signature as they kind of pop back through the whatever Jordy figured out. And because we end with their camp as they kind of are, you know, hanging out with the Vulcans and everything. I almost feel like we could have done that. And I, it is a Star Trek movie. You want to go back to the Enterprise. I get it. I just feel like it was just it was so tightly wrapped up at this point. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, there is there's you definitely need the make it so. What's he going to say? Engage? Make it so? What's, what's he going to say? <laughs> Which one? Which you one? don't know. I don't know. Uh. Um, we have some other uh, little uh, cast highlights. Uh, actually, Brandon Braga and uh, Robert Moore are in the holodeck sequence. <laughs> right. Uh, they're tripped out there. Uh, the voice of the Borg is Jeff Coopwood, who deserves credit. Uh, the, that's a, It's a cool, scary voice. Is that a standard? Um, like, do they always use him as the voice of the Borg on episodes two? I've always assumed that they did, but I'm I am not... Uh, entirely sure of that. Um, Star Trek Deep. He is the AD, he does ADR voice on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. ADR voice on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's cool. Captain Ron under siege. Leave of Faith. Uh, let's get into Star Trek. I only see him. He's only credited as Borg ever in First Contact. In First Contact. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, a great voice. I don't think he's he's done the other. He's quite the ADR voice person. He though. boy. He really is. He's everywhere. <laughs> the uh, the other. Uh, a character that I feel is woefully underused because he delights me every time, every, every, every time he's on screen is the character of uh, Reginald Barkley, uh, who <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I just find him great, uh, played by Dwight Schultz. He was, um, he's kind of an ancillary character. We get a couple of stories from him, but he definitely has some, some issues going on uh, and is constantly... 
in Troy's office working through his stuff. Uh, and he becomes a central character at the end of Voyager and helping get Voyager back to uh, to the, the right place at the right time. So um, he's great. He's underused here. He's used as a gaff, and, uh, you know, we, we don't really get to see enough of him, so... Yeah, people who uh, were familiar with the A-Team back in the 80s would know him as Howling Mad Murdoch. Oh, you're right. Yep, that's right. That's how they would know him. Dwight Schultz, Mad Murdoch. Uh, And Adam Scott, Defiant Con Officer. Uh, Adam Scott, I I know it's a, a little bit random, but we're in the middle of watching Parks and Rec around these place this this place and he is a uh, he plays Ben the accountant <laughs> how, did, I how did Park. I miss him in here where where was he he's on the defiant oh he's on I, I just totally I guess I wasn't paying enough attention on the defiant in that moment to see him that's funny I totally missed yeah. him and uh, Robert Picardo is uh, is the holographic doctor, which is again fan service. Nice that he's here as Gates McFadden is leaving, crawling through the Jeffrey's tube. He is uh, launched. He, of course, is our central doctor uh, in Voyager. Well, and what's the other guy who's the um, the one who pops up? Isn't he also in Voyager? Who's um, the one who pops up on the holodeck? Yes, absolutely. Ethan Phillips. He is. Uh, he doesn't play a human. Uh, he plays. He's got spots. I can't remember what his. Um, uh, he plays Neelix. I can't remember what his race is. Neelix was a Talaxian hybrid. Talaxian, that's right. He was a Talaxian. He had one, this girlfriend. One eighth Mylian. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, yes. Google. I love yes, it. Yes, Google's the best. <laughs> How did this end up doing uh, at an award season, Andy? This was more popular at uh, award season than its predecessor. Uh, it had eight wins and 21 nominations. Over at the Academy Awards, um, Michael Westmore, Scott Wheeler, and Jake Garber were nominated for Best Makeup. They lost to The Nutty Professor, uh, kind of kicking off Eddie Murphy and his uh, kind of uh, multiple, well, it wasn't really his multiple costumes, but certainly his fat suits. Um, and I will say, they did a really good job with The Nutty Professor. It's it's hard to, hard to argue that, um, although I... You know, this is one of those things. The makeup is really good in here. The new Borg makeup is really good. But I think a lot of people are probably like, well, we've seen the Borg before. So I think that might be why they lost. Yeah. Um, Over at the Saturn Awards, the Academy of uh, Sci-Fi Fantasy uh, Awards, it was nominated for 10 uh, nominations, which was fantastic. Uh, Best Sci-Fi Film, it lost to Independence Day. Uh, Best Actor, Patrick Stewart, lost to Eddie Murphy in The Nutty Professor. Best Director, uh, Jonathan Frakes, he lost to Roland Emmerich for Independence Day. Uh, Best Best Supporting Actor, Brent Spiner, who won. Best Supporting Actress, Alice Kriega, she won. Uh, Best Writers, Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore, they lost to Kevin Williamson for Scream, which seems like an odd one for sci-fi, but okay. Um, best, I, I guess in the horror camp, yeah, the horror yeah. side of things, um, best music, Jerry Goldsmith lost to Danny Elfman for Mars attacks. I have to disagree with that one. Um, it's fine, fine music, but Jerry Goldsmith, yeah. I think does so much more here. Best makeup again. They lost to Nettie professor, best costumes, Deborah Everton. She won for the costumes with this film. Um, thank goodness because I, I wanted her to get credit for that fantastic, uh, neckerchief that, uh, Cochran wears. Um, <laughs> And best special effects, John Knoll over at ILM um, lost Independence Day, um, but they did a great job. ILM with the digital ships. This is really kind of the first time where most of the ships are all digital and not models. Um, I think the Borg ship was actually a model, but I think everything else was all 
um, digital and um, they look really great. Um, but yeah, they did lose to Independence Day. Well, and the and then, hoops they had to jump through for that to make the, the spine uh, work uh, on that giant crane to put Alice Creek yeah. on that giant crane and, and merge her with the body. That's a that is that's a feat of kind of mechanics and CG. And it's just it's beautiful. It really is. And then over at the Image Awards, Alfre Woodard was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but lost to Loretta Devine in The Preacher's Wife. So, so mm. there you go. How about uh, in the numbers? How did it do uh, in, in, at the box office? Well, between the somewhat success of uh, Generations and the potential thrill of their most exciting enemy, the Borg, Paramount did give the team $46 million to make First Contact, or $70.4 million in today's dollars. That moves it to the second most expensive Star Trek film in adjusted dollars behind the first Star Trek film, which is still way ahead, more than twice the budget of this film in today's dollars, if you can believe that, wow. $152.3 million. I know, it's crazy. Um, feeling the November holiday slot was working for them, uh, the team stuck with it, um, as they did on the previous film. They opened this film November 22nd, 1996, opposite Schwarzenegger's holiday attempt, Jingle All the Way, and the limited release of Shine. It took the number one slot for one week until Disney's live-action remake of 101 Dalmatians knocked it down a slot, and the holiday glut of films quickly knocked it out of the top ten in just four weeks, which is really quick. Mm-hmm. First Contact did go on to make $92 million domestically and $58 million internationally for a total in today's dollars of $229.5 million. That gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.4 million. Better than Generations, but not by much. So, uh, but still, the uh, the team TNG was successful enough for another run in two years. It it's hard. Uh, this is still my favorite uh, TNG film. I really like what they the the what they did with the raw material of the film. Even though I have some script problems, uh, as we've discussed, but it looked good. Uh, it generally felt good. It, it's fallen down in the ranking for me a little bit after this viewing, uh, but I still get a lot of satisfaction out of it. And the, the stuff that happens on the ship is so much better than the stuff that happens uh, on Earth that it I, I give it a little bit more of a, a forgiveness, more of a pass. I, I do too. I mean, and really, it, it's the TNG film that I will watch again. Um I'm not as much a fan of the other ones, um, but this viewing, I ended up just having so many more problems with the story than I ever had before, and I feel like it's going to kind of keep plaguing me every time I rewatch it, so I don't know if I'm going to return to this one as much as I will have uh, thought I would have, so... It's a nice clip film. Like I, I feel like yeah. I just I could watch, you know, lots of the clips of the stuff happening on the, on the ship and kind of move on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so overall, pretty good. Very much looking forward to how you rank it, Andy. Well, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel or just swipe over in your podcasty device and tap the flick chart button. It's right there. You just tap it and you'll jump right over to this movie. All right. First up, we have Star Trek First Contact or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's the Oh Brother block conundrum again. I'm going to say Oh Brother. Well, that's not good. <laughs> I'm going to say Oh Brother I just brother don't have too. the story problems. I know. Yeah, I, I, I know. just, I'm going to say that too, but I, it hurts me. Uh, Star Trek First Contact or Atlantic City. Star Trek uh, First Contact. Yeah, I'll say, I'll say First Contact. Star Trek First Contact or no. First uh, Contact for me. Uh, yeah, First Contact. Star Trek First Contact or whatever happened to Baby Jane. I'm going with Baby Jane. I'm going First Contact. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. One, One two, two, three, three paper. Rock. Well, you take it. Uh-huh. uh-huh. First contact or the asphalt jungle. I'm going to say asphalt jungle. 
I'm gonna say Star Trek First Contact. All right, here we go. Uh huh. One, one, two, two three. three rocks. Scissors. Oh. Mm, two for two. Me twice. Star Trek First Contact or Kind Hearts and Coronets. Star Trek First Contact. Yeah, I'll give you First Contact on this one. All right. Uh, first Contact or The Long Kiss Goodnight. I'm going to go with Long Kiss Goodnight. I will also go Long Kiss Goodnight. First Contact or Stagecoach. Definitely First Contact. First Contact. All right. Well, that leaves it at 162 out of 317 movies on our list. So Really? It's in the bottom half. Uh, it but puts not by it, much. Uh, not by much. It's, it's definitely in there. Uh, let me see where uh, it uh, puts it at. From what we've seen... That puts it uh, below, right below the motion picture, right above the voyage home. That I guess that feels about right in terms of our overall flick chart ranking. One sixty-two out of three seventeen. That's uh, it's just below. It's like fifty-one percent. Yeah, fifty-one percent. That's fascinating. Where did it end up on your personal flick chart? It ended up, you know, it's it's in my top twenty percent. It's at about seven forty-four out of thirty-eight fourteen. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's up there. It's something that I definitely enjoy, but it's, uh, you know, it's not like top 10 or anything. I am really surprised I re-ranked it myself and it is, uh, it, it ended up, I, I worry that I, I don't know, I was hung over when I ranked it this time because, uh, it ended up at 499, uh, out of my, you know, 996. So it's, it's at 50%. Like it's wow. right in the middle, yeah. Uh, and and according to that, on letterbox.com slash the next reel, that means I should be rating it at a two and a half star uh, out of five. Uh, I disagree with that. <laughs> uh, I have more fun with this movie than two and a half stars. And in fact, right now, I think it's actually rated at four and a half stars with a heart. Um, uh, and I, I think after our conversation, I'm probably going to dump it to a four. Uh, and leave it right there with a heart. I, I it, it probably was a four for me, and then after this watch, it dropped a little bit. So it's three and a half, uh, but I like it. I, I just, you know, I feel like they missed the mark so often in the story department here that it, it ends up frustrating me. Uh, you know, the board queen frustrates me. There's a lot of things that frustrate me with it, and I, I feel like they could have really made the definitive uh, next generation film battling the Borg. And I feel like they missed their mark by introducing the Borg queen and, and not doing enough with uh, what they were doing on earth. So I, I'm at three and a half cause I still enjoy it. Um, despite my issues. You know, what's funny about this is that Ron Moore goes on to do uh, Battlestar Galactica, which it, to my eye is the definitive Borg battle, right? <laughs> it, <laughs> right. It, it is the definitive Borg story. Uh, so maybe I just need to go back and watch that series again. There you go. All right. Uh, where do we go from here, Andy? What troubled seas lie ahead? We are going to be uh, jumping forward a couple years, and we're going to hit up Star Trek Insurrection, which uh, which will be fun to uh, revisit and see how it ends up playing out. I remember kind of enjoying it enough, but not loving it. Um, so I'm curious to kind of revisit this one and see how it ends up uh, on a rewatch. Yeah, me too. I'm nervous about it because my memory of it is much better than other people tell me I should think about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that these next two films are, are really, really terrible, and I I don't remember them that way. That's my recollection of them. So <laughs> uh, That they're really terrible? <laughs> that, yeah, I, I think that I, I 
seem to feel like you know pretty subpar with both of them. So I'm I'm curious to revisit them and see yeah. if they are or if there's more merit to them than I'm uh, just not remembering. Well, I'm really excited about that, Andy. I can't wait uh, for next week because when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. <laughs> I don't know. I, I went with a one star today. Ooh, uh, looking and, forward to it. Yeah, I did it because uh, because it sounds like one of my people. Uh, this comes from Oregon Bird. Who oh, says probably film, is one of your people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a bird. <laughs> cheesy, <laughs> cheesy and violent, says Oregon Bird. I thought I might watch the 1966 Fantastic Voyage tonight, but after seeing the trailer, it seemed very cheesy. So I thought a more modern sci-fi movie would do, like First Contact, which has been praised as one of the best Star Trek movies. But this movie was feeling almost as cheesy as Fantastic Voyage. At around 30 minutes, things turned quite violent. At 36 minutes, I turned off the TV, grabbed my bowl of popcorn and beer, and went back to reading my current Star Trek book. I just wasted 36 minutes and $4 renting this movie. It left a bad taste in my mouth, but at least the popcorn was tasty. If this is one of the best Star Trek movies, I would hate to see the worst. I still think Star Trek IV The Voyage Home was a good one, much better than the first half hour of First Contact. Very disappointed. I would just add, maybe if you wanted a better taste in your mouth, don't watch this movie with a bowl of popcorn and beer. <laughs> I like that there are fans of the Star Trek books, though. Like I know there's a weird little thing going on here. I'm like, is this person enjoy Star Trek or not? Because they, you know, they <laughs> right. <laughs> what are you possibly like? What do you fall in love with that you love the books but not the movies? <laughs> there's a Venn diagram. It's like the circles don't connect at all. Right, exactly. Very strange. Well, <laughs> I went with a five-star on this one uh, by Putter 53 who says, A great night watch. It was a joy to watch their history being made. I never liked the Borg. When the captain did the right thing, I loved it. Loved the part where the Valcons heard the music. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, this. This person must the have read that other Falcons? review that I, <laughs> the Valcons, with Leonard <laughs> Leonard Nimoy and Scooty. <laughs> exactly. How do you find those? <laughs> oh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022. We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. 
Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.